Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, how to make diamonds not just hard but tough, evidence of incest within the Neolithic Irish elite and a discussion of shutdown STEM and racism in academia. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Howe. First up, reporter Adam Levy has been finding out a new way to toughen up diamonds. I have an important characteristic in common with diamonds. No, not my radiant appearance, it's what we're like on the inside that counts. You see, neither me nor diamonds are very tough. Now, you might be thinking, wait, aren't diamonds famed for their strength? And you'd be absolutely right, diamonds are incredibly hard. But hardness and toughness are two different things. The hard material is very difficult to deform, so it will keep the shape This is material scientist Bo Shu. So squish a hard material and it will barely deform at all. But toughness describes a different characteristic, how a material responds to being hit. Brittle materials will crash into pieces, but uh, tough materials, they can handle this energy. And while diamonds are incredibly hard, they are also, like me, not very tough. We cannot deform diamond easily, but we can break diamond very easily. You use a hammer to hit the diamond, basically the diamond will get into pieces. But what if you could make a material that is both hard and tough? Normally the harder you make a material, the less able it is to absorb impacts by deforming, and that means it's less tough. But this week in Nature, Bo Shu and colleagues have made a diamond composite material that is both hard and tough. To do this, the team employed a set of strategies. For example, they use something called nano-twinning. 
This technique is inspired by the properties of seashells and precisely lines up neighboring crystals within the diamond. But they also constructed their diamond composite like bricks and mortar. You just put brick together. Basically, you can push it, and this wall will fall, right? But when the mortar and、uh, the brick structure they work、uh, together, you you can build a very strong wall. You push it, the wall will resist. The mortar you can say is a very thin slice, different from the ordinary diamond. So while ordinary diamond could collapse like loose bricks, adding thin portions of another material within the diamond composite can help hold things together, like mortar. Using not just one but several strategies helped make an extra tough material. All these、uh, toughening mechanics works together to enhance the toughness of our diamond、uh, composite. Okay, but just how tough was this diamond composite? Well, not only was it as hard as previous materials the team had made, but it was also substantially less brittle. The improvement in toughness is amazing, actually. Compare with ordinary diamond, the toughness of our sample is increased to five times. In real terms, that means you've now got a material that is much more resistant to being shattered, as the group demonstrated with the toughness test. So we drop a small, like a bullet, onto the sample. So basically, our new Material. They are still in one piece, but for the ordinary diamond, you can clearly see it's broken into pieces. The diamond material isn't the only thing that was tough, though. Actually, building the material has been a challenging journey. We are really excited about this work, but also we are expecting this work for a long time since we are working in this project like for ten years. But now the team have the material, they can think of plenty of uses for it. Since it's more durable, it could provide a longer-lasting and, in the long run, perhaps cheap alternative to standard diamonds for certain applications. It could also open up new avenues of exploration, like drilling deep into the Earth's surface. Currently, we can drill ten thousand meter, but with our materials, we can go in the Earth even deeper. But one of the tasks that Boshu is most excited to use the material for is creating metallic hydrogen. Theory predicts that hydrogen should behave as a metal at extra high pressures, and this hard, tough diamond composite might be just the material for squashing hydrogen into this form. It can provide an ideal instrument to test or to confirm the existence of metallic. Hydrogen. You know, everyone are racing for these goals for the holy grail in high pressure science. So we will definitely work in this direction. That was Bo Xu of Yanchen University in China. We'll put a link to his paper in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about what DNA evidence found in a five thousand year old tomb has revealed about relationships within the ancient Irish elite. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights. Brought to you by Dan Fox. A spacecraft that whizzed past Venus and Mercury more than a decade ago could help to solve one of physics' most enduring puzzles: the lifetime of the neutron. Neutrons may be long-lived when locked away in the nuclei of a stable atom, but on their own, they decay within minutes. 
Scientists have yet to agree exactly how long it takes, but now a team of researchers think they found the answer in readings taken by NASA's Messenger spacecraft. By comparing the number of neutrons Messenger detected in space as it flew past Venus and Mercury with the number expected to be produced by cosmic ray collisions, the team calculate that neutrons live around 780 seconds, plus or minus 70 seconds. Take the lifetime of a free neutron off to read that research in full at Physical Review Research. An endangered ocean giant has found sanctuary deep under the Arctic ice. The Spitsbergen bowhead whale was hunted to near extinction by the 1990s. And while the whale's songs were still detected in the waters east of Greenland, scientists knew little about the species' habits. This challenge was taken up by a team of researchers from the Norwegian Polar Institute. Flying in a helicopter launched from an icebreaker, the team were able to shoot transmitter tags into the blubber of 13 whales. The animal's paths show that contrary to other bowheads, the Spitsbergen whales journey south in summer and north in winter, spending the colder months in deep, cold seas, almost entirely covered in ice. The authors suggest that whalers eliminated the population of whales that chose warmer winter seas, leaving only the hardy animals that chose to dwell beneath the Arctic ice. Now, as the population of Spitsbergen bowheads recovers, they may face a new challenge as climate change threatens the ice sheets. You can read that research in full at Biology Letters. Ireland boasts the highest concentration of megalithic architecture in Western Europe. These vast structures or monuments made of stone are some of the oldest buildings in the world. Some of the most impressive structures are called passage tombs, and Newgrange Passage Tomb in the Boyne Valley, just north of Dublin, is one of the biggest ones out there. It took around 200,000 tonnes of material to build it, and some of this material was transported from up to 70 kilometres away. Its sheer scale has begged the question among archaeologists as to what kind of society must have built these things more than 5,000 years ago. Well, in an unexpected twist, a large-scale genomics project conducted by Lara Cassidy, Daniel Bradley and their colleagues might hold the answer. Reporter Jeff Marsh has the story, which begins with some Irish prehistory context from archaeologist Alison Sheridan, who wasn't part of the research team, but has written a News & Views article on the new findings. It looks as though there have been people in Ireland since about 8000 BC, and they must have sailed over. And these people are relatable to um, the kind of hunter-gatherer community that you get in the West of Europe, but they are separated from their contemporaries within Britain. Then the first farmers clearly came in. They were immigrants, and we're able to suggest that the ultimate origin of these farmers was northern France, two parts of northern France. If you imagine about 4000 BC, people were coming in from Brittany, and building very tiny, very simple megalithic tombs. And then over the course of the fourth millennium, these particular tombs, these passage tombs, got bigger and more elaborate. And so what we see in the Boyne Valley is really the 
the end result of this process of aggrandizement. Are we saying that the knowledge and the traditions behind these big stone structures was imported with the farmers? Yes, that's right. At the very, very beginning. So the whole idea of building megalithic monuments at all to honour the dead is something which was characteristic of the continent at the time, but it was totally alien to the indigenous hunter-gatherer-fisher communities within Ireland and indeed within the whole of Britain. And as an archaeologist, you know, when you come across some of these massive tombs, what hypotheses do they throw up about what sort of society was behind them? They required so much effort and time and labour to construct them. They suggest um, a very high degree of organisation. They must have persuaded many, many people to get together and build these things. You know, the obvious hypothesis is that we are dealing with a society that was ranked at the time and that it was actually an elite that was responsible for the building of these fantastic, magnificent monuments. They designed Newgrange so that the sun... On midwinter solstice, the rising sun would shine along the passage and into the chamber. And this was a way that they could say they are controlling the movement of the sun. The importance of this was that at the shortest day of the year, a farming community would need to know the days were going to get longer and they would be able to plant their seeds and the crops would grow again. And therefore, having a ceremony that marked the shortest day of the year was a great way of of achieving this. What I think is really great about Ireland is that it's an island and it's sort of a terminal point on the continent. So it's quite a little contained system in itself to understand prehistoric societies. It's it's a nice microcosm to do it in. My name's Lara Cassidy. Um, I'm a geneticist, I suppose ancient geneticist uh, working at Trinity College, Dublin. Ancient genomes have been used a lot to talk about population migration and movement. It's cool that we're now starting to see a lot of papers coming out that are trying to move beyond this and talk about political systems. One of the most incredible prehistoric landscapes in the world would have to be Bruna Boinia in County Meath on the east coast of Ireland. Uh, so this is when megalithic culture really went on steroids. You get these massive, massive monuments, incredible architectural sophistication. I think one of the other great things about megalithic tombs for ancient DNA purposes is they almost act like fridges. <laughs> We've managed to get a really good survival of ancient DNA from these tombs and they've allowed us to understand a bit more about the people who were buried in them. You sequenced 44 whole genomes from Neolithic Ireland, one of which was at this particular heritage site in this Newgrange tomb. And it led to some pretty stark conclusions about the parents of the chap that you found there, right? Yes. So um, as clear as daylight, his parents were first degree relatives. So either full siblings or parent and child. Wow. Yes. And as unusual as that is to find... His burial place is also extremely unique. He is within one of the most grand megalithic structures we have from across Neolithic Europe. And not only that, he's in the most beautifully decorated recess, the biggest recess at the end of the passage. So, yeah, it's very hard to imagine that his parentage was not socially sanctioned, given where he was buried 
most of the time, if you do find sibling matings that are accepted, they're half siblings, full siblings are, are very rare. And these societies all have a lot of things in common. The first degree incest is restricted to an elite, typically only a royal couple or royal clan. They're highly stratified societies. They take multiple wives. Uh, the throne has patrilineal descent. So there are a lot of markers that appear up again and again that seem to accompany the exceptions to this universal taboo. You've been thinking about this find at Newgrange presumably for quite a long time now. Do you have an image in your head who he was and you know what he looked like and is there any genetic evidence for what he looked like? Yeah so we did pigmentation prediction so he would have been on the darker end of skin tone that we see in the Irish Neolithic black hair dark eyes and very dark skin it's hard because we didn't get a complete skeleton so we can't do a height profile or anything like that we don't have the remains for it. As if this lucky find linking the archaeological theories with genetic evidence wasn't strange enough, here's Lara's colleague Daniel Bradley with another bewildering piece to add to the puzzle. There's one other uh, sort of crazy uh, coincidence, and that is in, in the region of Newgrange, there's other passage tombs, and actually a neighbouring one has a medieval myth around it. And uh, the medieval myth is that whenever uh, it was built... It was built by a builder king and in order to build it he got his sister to cast a spell to stop the sun in the middle of the sky while the men of Ireland built it and they were to work for him for one day but the day lasted long because the sun was stopped and then he slept with his sister and that broke the spell and the tower never got completed. Now this is mythology. The interesting thing about it is that before our results there was some discussion about whether it implied that there was a memory, an oral memory that stretched all the way back to the Neolithic period, 4,000 years earlier, because it had a solar phenomenon in it. And Newgrange and other passage tombs have these solar phenomena built into their fabric. What we're finding now is this crazy story actually chimes with the parentage of the individual that we find in the centre of Newgrange. I'm not qualified to try and argue that oral history can last for 4,000 years, but it's an interesting, at least a coincidence, that we find with our data. The other wing of our data was two Mesolithic individuals. Now, these are hunter-gatherers. They're the original inhabitants of Ireland were hunter-gatherers, of course, before farmers. And uh, we have two of those. They're separated by about 500 years. And those genomes are interesting because they're like other northwestern European hunter-gatherers, but they're also sort of different. So if I was to summarise it, whereas we can tell that the Irish hunter-gatherers share a strong affinity with each other that makes them more closely related to each other than either are to Cheddar Man or hunter-gatherers from the continent, the same is not true for the British hunter-gatherers. There's some sort of distinction with the Irish hunter-gatherers. They also carry within their genome a signature from lack of diversity, which is indicative of them having come from a small population. Does that suggest then that, you know, those early Irish hunter-gatherers will have had to have arrived there by boat, but that there was then very little kind of continued boat movement and mixing between Ireland and Britain? 
I think it does imply some level of restriction of that. I mean, we're not going to argue there's no movement of communication, but there's a restriction that we don't see um, written in the genomes uh, between Britain and the continent. The other aspect of our data that comes from the hunter-gatherers is that it's now well established from many studies that the first farmers, when they arrive in these islands, are ultimately descendants of Anatolians. So whenever farming arrives, it's not a transfer of culture, but it's also a transfer of people. Now, a question is, what happens to the original hunter-gatherers? Do they simply disappear? Or is there some ancestry in the Neolithic people that stretches back to the hunter-gatherers? And we found one individual, just one, from the west of Ireland, who was an early farmer, but we can tell that his great-grandparent was an Irish hunter-gatherer. And what that tells us is that whereas our local hunter-gatherers absolutely were swamped and replaced, there was some legacy, some genetic heritage that filtered through, that persisted from them. Gone but not forgotten. Before I wrapped up, I wanted a final word from Alison Sheridan again. I think this is one of the most significant bits of research ever to have been done on Newgrange. And it really is a game changer insofar as the evidence for incest is unique within British and Irish prehistory. The people responsible for the DNA study have suggested maybe it was a way of sort of protecting a dynastic bloodline. I like that. I think that's quite a plausible explanation. Does that tally with the hypotheses surrounding these tombs within the archaeological field? It absolutely tallies with the hypothesis that uh, the people responsible for building these mega, mega tombs were an elite, for sure. Um, And it, it gives us so much depth into the broader narrative that we're able to say. And the fact, too, that there were genetic links with people who'd built and used, who were buried in passage tombs elsewhere in Ireland is, is mind-blowing. Sounds like genomics and archaeology make, make fairly productive bedfellows. Absolutely. And I think that genomics is a, an incredibly powerful tool. It has to be applied to archaeology in the most careful way, because otherwise you can, you can start making really wacky interpretations. And, and that's the great danger of it. I think the most important thing is that there is a good dialogue between archaeologists and geneticists. That was Alison Sheridan of National Museum Scotland. You also heard from Lara Cassidy and Daniel Bradley. You can find a link to their paper, published this week in Nature, in the show notes. Last week, as part of the Shutdown STEM movement, we pressed pause on releasing the show for a day to dedicate some time to educating ourselves and defining actions we can take to help eradicate anti-black racism in academia and STEM. More on the outcomes of that day in the coming weeks and months. Meanwhile, Nature reporter Nidhi Subraman has also been reporting on shutdown STEM and racism in academia. I talked to her about this over the phone. Here's that conversation. So I think it would be amiss to not talk about George Floyd in any of these discussions about racism. So Nidhi, would you be able to just give us a little bit of background? George Floyd was a black man who lived in Minneapolis. He died after a police encounter in the city, after he was restrained and knelt on during a visit to a supermarket. He's one of many black Americans who have died after encounters with the police. And each time these events occur, there is renewed attention to the fact 
that Black Americans overwhelmingly encounter violence at the hands of police compared to white Americans. And this this particular loss at the end of May brought out an unusual level of intensity and alarm and grieving and protest to U.S. streets. It was initially in Minneapolis, where Floyd lived, where people took to the streets to say that police brutality is unacceptable, that Black Lives Matter. And over the next week, it emerged into a national and international conversation about the roots of police violence, as well as racial injustice towards Black Americans and Black people globally. And in the wake of this, a lot of things have happened. But in your reporting, you've been focusing on the response of of scientists, especially Black scientists. Can you tell me a little bit about what effect there has been on the community of Black scientists in the wake of this? So we've seen scientists, Black scientists in particular, be unusually candid about the way they've faced racism within their own organisations, within the conferences that they attend, within the lab groups that they have, and spell it out in, in shocking and alarming detail. Many of them initially were saying how the events of the protests, George Floyd's death itself, weighed on them unusually and at one level an invisible additional burden that they carried that people who weren't Black within the scientific institution didn't perhaps recognize. They just had to go on to the next lab meeting. But beyond that, many spoke of ways that they had felt pushed out or left out or faced hostility because of who they were. And in that sort of vein, you spoke to a couple of scientists who started a hashtag Black in the Ivory. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So Black in the Ivory, the hashtag really touched on this vein of honesty and outrage that was taking over Black science Twitter. It was started by two researchers who study communications, one a grad student and a professor. And essentially, they just wanted to share their story. They wanted to say how they had encountered hostility in academia. And it really took off at a time when people were ready to share their stories and draw attention to the fact that there was this unequal treatment that they were experiencing in science, in academia at large. So there was just an outpouring of honest and thinly veiled stories of incidents, encounters, examples of how they had felt like they didn't belong, how people had felt like their needs weren't taken seriously, incidents where people felt like they weren't being supported in the way that they felt they needed to be within science and within academia at large. And one other thing that we've seen is recently there has been a strike in academia to shut down STEM. Can you tell me a little bit about this? What was the impetus behind it? Again, this was rooted in some of the same impulses that drove the open grieving that we saw soon after George Floyd's death. It was scientists basically saying enough. Science needs to stop, take stock of how it is treating the minority groups in it and do justice to the way that they are supported in this space. So two different groups actually had come up with the idea to have a day of striking. Essentially, one of the founders explained it to me, if you'd had a swarm of protesters who blocked a highway and stopped traffic from moving, could they do that for science so that people would pay attention to the fact that there is 
unequal treatment and unequal experiences within it. And so together, the two groups shut down STEM or shut down academia, which was beyond science, and Particles for Justice, which is a group of physicists, including two black physicists, who've spoken up on issues of social justice in the past within science, they launched a couple of hashtags, Strike for Black Lives, Shut Down STEM, and Shut Down Academia, and called on institutions and societies and universities to stop work for a day and think about the ways in which racism persists. What was sort of the hope on the organisers? What did they want to see as a result of this action? I think the immediate ask was to draw attention to the fact that racism in science is a problem and calling it out is a first step to taking steps to address it. I think their hope is that this puts pressure on powers that be institutions with money, institutions that make important decisions, universities that make key hires to look at the way that this imbalance may be influencing the way they decide where money goes, what research gets funded, and ultimately make science a more inclusive, a more diverse place with the hope that the social benefit of science is also similarly wide-reaching. And so I guess the question is for many people who want to show their support with it is what what can they do? So what are black academics saying? What are they saying is useful for people to support them? I think I'm seeing many calls for just an acknowledgement that there is this imbalance, that science may not be welcoming to all people. And figuring out how you can help support those groups that say they haven't felt historically welcome in it. I'm also seeing calls from folks to just understand the issue a little bit, understand what actions or what terms or what comments may add to slights may add to a sense of, why do you belong here? Do you really belong here? So sort of, you know, educate oneself about how not to cause more hurt. People are also asking for sort of public shows of support that go a long way in the sense that if you observe a case where somebody makes a hurtful or racist comment or a disparaging comment in a public forum, say something in support of the person that it may have hurt. That goes a long way in calling out the issue and it doesn't sort of burden the person who sort of felt the slight with also speaking up. That was Nidhi Subbaraman, one of the reporters here at Nature. You can find links to all the stories we talked about over in the show notes. That's all for this week. Don't forget there'll be another edition of Coronapod on Friday, so keep an eye out on your podcast feed for that. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.